Uh, last Sunday in the book of Job, we wrapped up God's humiliating test in chapters 38 and 39, where the Lord unleashed a series of questions about creation and the animal kingdom that Job could not answer. God was teaching Job that, that he alone is creator, ruler, and provider, while Job is finite and a dependent creature who really needs to repent of his foolish talk and attitude and submit to God's rule, and he needs to trust that God will take care of him. Even though he's lost everything, he still needs to trust that God will meet his needs, that God will take care of him ultimately. And after blasting the battered patriarch with all of those humiliating questions in 38 and 39, Job begins to realize how foolish he's been acting. And he starts to display some repentance. But he hasn't yet hit rock bottom. He's not yet where the Lord wants him to be. But he's headed there. But he's not quite there yet. Now in the next section, which would be chapters 40 and 41, I believe it, this to be true, but I think God just unleashes His most devastating salvo on Job yet. And He does this to bring Job to the end of Himself, which He successfully does. What we see... Uh, immediately following this in, in kind of the beginning of chapter 42 is we see King David in Psalm 51 level contrition and repentance from Job. Or maybe we could parallel to Isaiah's self-realization and contrition in Isaiah 6-5 where he beholds the glory of God and he says, I am blown apart, I am undone. So these new, next two chapters are very critical for Job's process of realization and brokenness. And this is where God just, he really just unleashes on Job. There's a lot of sarcasm here. There's even some mocking. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. It doesn't seem like the best tactic, but God is God and does what he wants and he does what works. And Whatever it is that he does is proven through, it just stands the test of time. And so it's going to be an interesting couple of chapters. And of course, we're, it's going to take several messages to get through it. There is a lot of content here in chapter 40 and in the latter part of 40 and in 41. There's just a, a lot. It's really not difficult stuff to understand. It's pretty simple, but there's just a lot. There's you know, 24 verses in, in this chapter, and we're only going to deal with the first 14, and then in the next chapter, there's 34 verses, and you know how tough it is for me to get through that many verses, and I equally know how tough it is for you to endure over an hour's worth of preaching on all those verses, but you're great students nonetheless. Uh, so there's a lot of content here. We're going to break it up. Today, we'll do Job's Day in Divine Court, part 3.1 probably going to be three parts in part three, point one, point two, and point three, because it's, it's all the same narrative in area of correction, so we don't want to jump to like part four. That'll be the end. So if you guys could be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn to Job 40. We're looking at verses one through 14. 
And I'd like to pray once more for God's help. Lord, we humble ourselves and, and just ask for your help this morning, helping us to, to hear with our ears, to understand with our minds, to embrace with our hearts, to live out the truth through our actions. May that be propelled and fueled by love for you. Help us this morning be glorified in this message. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. So we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday, and that would be verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40. This is what God says next as he's been cross-examining Job. It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Uh, he who argues with God, let him answer it. Stop there. So immediately following that volley of devastating questions in 38 and 39, which really just obliterated Job and made him realize, you know what, God, you're the one that does all these wonderful things. You're the one that takes care of the animals and everything else. Now God is really pressing in an application on him. And I love this because he begins by calling Job a fault finder. That doesn't sound like a, a positive thing, does it? You're a fault finder. What does that mean to be a fault finder? It's actually, it doesn't carry with it really a negative connotation here. A fault finder isn't someone who sits back and analyzes people with some level of self-righteousness in themselves and they look at others and they're trying to find faults in others. That's what comes to mind for me when I think of a fault finder. A fault finder, according to the Hebrew here, is someone who exhorts or corrects, admonishes others. Someone who sees a fault but takes an opportunity to, to reprove or reprimand that person. So it doesn't really carry a negative connotation. Aren't parents fault finders in that regard? They analyze their children's behavior. They reprimand the behavior when it falls short of what it should be. That's fault finding. And I would say in a more positive sense, right? So parents are fault finders in that regard. Aren't school teachers fault finders? Absolutely. I found much fault with my teachers when I was in school, especially when I went to Davis High School. I spent most of my time in the office with the dean who I was trying to persuade that I wasn't as bad as he said. Um, so teachers are fault finders in that regard, and aren't pastors fault finders in that regard? A pastor who is always analyzing his people and criticizing them, that's the wrong kind of fault finder. Um, but a pastor who watches and listens and knows his congregation, knows his, the Lord's sheep that he's in charge of, that he's caring for, it's his job to, to bring things to their attention when necessary and, and to lovingly reprimand. And so that's what it's meant here. But the, there's a, a problem here with Job as a fault finder. He's fault finding against God. That, that's where the line has been crossed. That's where there's a negative connotation here. He, he's a fault finder in that he has been known 
to lovingly correct others. In fact, in chapter 4, it talks about his ministry to others. He raised people up and strengthened people in his community. I think he was being a fault finder then at times in a positive way. But now he's directing these discernment skills and these corrective skills against the one who is always eternally above reproach that we can find no fault with. So that's the meaning here. He is trying to find fault with God and trying to reprimand God. He basically assumed the role of a fault finder when he attempted to contend with the Almighty, the text says. And how did he do that? Well, when he accused God of being silent in Job 33. When he accused God of being unjust in Job 34. When he accused God of being uncaring in Job 35. When he accused God of being inactive in Job 36. When he questioned whether or not God was in control, Job 37. Right? So this is where the fault finder is trying to fault God with not exhibiting all of these very positive characteristics. So what we see here is the Almighty calling Job to account for such a foolish, reckless attack against the Almighty. You're trying to find fault in me and calling me uncaring. You're implying all of these things. And really what's happened here is I think what Job in a sense, and maybe God is also reading his heart and his mind here because only God can do that, but it's like it makes sense for Job to be a little bit more perturbed right now after getting hammered in chapter 38 and 39, right? I mean, how, how well do you guys do after a correction? I've had to correct some of you, and I can tell you from experience, you don't do well with it. Not at all. In fact, you go like this, no. You, right? Isn't that what we do? We deflect, right? When we need to listen, you know? And of course, if, if the fault finding and admonition is not done in love, then that should be questioned because you can say, hey, I don't feel like you're really loving me. You're brutalizing me. Uh, but in any case, I don't think any of us do all that well with correction. If it's gentle and loving, we, we do better with it. If it's being asked around 70 questions that we cannot answer, as in the case with God toward Job. I'm just thinking that Job is uh, probably a little bit more agitated right now than he was prior to chapter 38. In any case, he has been faulting or trying to find fault with God. And God has presented an amazing case in 38 and 39, and now he's just simply calling Job to account. And really, this would be my paraphrase of what we're reading here. God is saying to Job, let the fault finder who desires to contend with me speak. You've been, you've been speaking, Job, a lot. You have more speeches in, in the book that bears your name than anyone else, including me. Your speeches are longer than mine and everyone else's. And you have been aiming all of this fault and fault finding at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You have been talking to them to their faces about me. So, and you've accused me of things to them. Well, Job, here I am in the whirlwind. I'm right here. You've got my attention. Speak up. Speak up. Now, imagine trying to talk to a tornado. 
right? You usually yell things that you shouldn't and run from a tornado, right? He's here facing God who's in the whirlwind, and he's saying, you've said quite a, a few many things, not necessarily in front of my face, although we know God is everywhere, but here I am, and here's my face. Say what you said to them, say it to me now. And not, he's not saying this in a threatening way to Job. He's just simply saying, I'm here, speak. I'm uncaring. I'm unjust. What am I? Fault finder. I'm listening. So what, what do you think's going through Job's mind here? You think he's like, well, let me tell you, I got my list. Hold on. Pulls it out of his backpack. You think he actually would even dare to speak up at this point? No, no, no. Look at what happens in, in verses 3 to 5. Here's Job's response. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. Uh, the modern day translation, Behold, I am a peon. I'm tiny. I'm an ant. He says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? What, what shall I possibly say? And then he says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job answers the Lord here, which I thought was, I don't know if I would have. But he did give an answer here. But did you notice what he didn't do? He didn't fault find. He didn't present his case that he had been waiting a very, very long time and preparing to, 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 to share with God when he got this moment in God's presence. He doesn't even do the task that he wanted to do so badly. He says, I'm a peon. What could I possibly say to you? I'll just lay my hand over my mouth and shut up. It, it kind of reminds me as he's standing there with his hand over his mouth. Do you, do you remember that? The creepy Japanese pictorial maxim, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Remember the monkeys? I think I had that little, I don't even know if you call it a toy. It's more like a proverb, but I think I had one of those when I was a kid. And every time I looked at it, those chimpanzees just scared the heck out of me. It was just a, a creepy looking, th why would you give that to your kid? I think the parents were trying to send me a message. You need to hear no evil, speak no evil, and see no evil. And, and I, I see that here with Job now as he stands there like this. He's the last monkey. And he was being a baboon, wasn't he? So, really what you see here is a new posture for Job, right? This is a new posture he's assuming. Um, it, it shows that the rapid-fire creation questions in chapters 38 and 39 did have a pretty profound effect on him. Uh, the hard-headed accuser was starting to humbly acquiesce. Job had repeatedly insisted on presenting his case before the Almighty, right, over and over and over. But when he finally got his wish, he repentantly stated, I will proceed no further, and then he claps his hand over his mouth. All that big talk to his friends. And then he gets his chance. And this is what he does. It's pretty amazing. So God's rebuke in 38 and 39 had a really, really good effect on him. He was being humbled, humiliated in a positive way, and now he was being humbled. But like I said a minute ago, he's not yet where God 
wants him to be. And, and let me tell you something. We see that so clearly in verses 6 and 7. You would think that after Job kind of repents there, the book ends, everything's restored to him, right? No, God's not done because God knows his heart. Man, I, I, if I were God, I would be rejoicing that he's starting to repent here, I suppose. But it's not enough, and God knows his heart. And listen to what it says. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, so he's still there in the whirlwind speaking. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make known to me the questions that I ask. You're going to give me answers. So, so these verses show that even after this moment of repentance, God was not yet finished confronting Job. Although he had expressed some level of repentance for attacking God's character, because that's essentially what he was doing. As I said a moment ago, Job has not yet hit the depth, the deep level of contrition and repentance that he needs to get to. So from the whirlwind, the Lord continues his cross-examination of Job. Uh, like a five-star general, God calls his soldier to attention. This is military language. He's really repeating uh, the command that he gave Job in chapter 38, verse 3. He says the exact same three, thing when he's about ready to call him to account. Dress for action like a man. That's military language. I will question you and you will make it known to me. So, ten, hup, stand up straight. Stand at attention. Now listen to me, Job. I am the commanding officer. This is what God is saying. So we know God is not done with him. I'm thinking Job was like, aren't we done? How much longer does this elder meeting have to go on? I just showed some kind of repentance. Yes, but we can see your heart and you're not there. Now, when a person accuses God of wrongdoing, or even really just questions his providence or any of these things, they are implying that they are wiser than God and that they would be better suited to run the universe. Right? If somebody were to question you, like one of your children were to question a, a, a part of the way that you run your household, would you not say to them, what, would you like to have the keys to the house and run the household? Right? Does, would you not interpret that as, what, do you think you can do a better job than I can at running this household? Would you like to be the parent? Here's the checkbook. Actually, here's the card, because we don't use checks anymore, son. Here's all the bills, right? Once in a while, somebody writes a check in the Winco line, and I'm like, Lord, have mercy, save them to ATM. How long is it going to take? Can we get an approval over here? Right? You know what I'm talking about when that lady busts out her checkbook. How archaic. I don't know why I'm saying this. But when somebody questions you in your home like that, do you not feel that compulsion to say, well, do you think you could do a better job? Or maybe they question you at work. Well, if you, here's my desk. I'm sure, Tim, you've felt that way before. Well, I run a division or a department. If Fred, if you think you can do it better, here you go. And that's really what we see here. Job's accusations, he's implying, inferring that, that you know what, God, your running of the universe is, is good, but let me give you some pointers. And, and that's the way that God interprets Job's words and actions through the book. Job's accusations prompted God to challenge Job to prove that he has what it takes to do God's job. That's literally from verse 8 in this text all the way through the end of 41. That's the entire direction. That's the motif 
God saying, you think you can do a better job? Let me see you do this. Do you think you can do a better job? Let me see you do that. That's the rest of these chapters. And this is where God unleashes his most devastating attack, which does finally break Job. What he does is he challenges Job to prove that Job possesses seven attributes. Seven attributes. And the point is, is that, Job, you can't run the universe unless you have these attributes. If you want to do my job, you need to prove that you have these particular attributes because the universe cannot be run by anyone unless they have them. That is essentially the rest of this chapter and the next chapter. That's the entirety of this whole text. These are essential attributes. You're not running anything without them. So God challenges him seven times on these attributes. And we can look at the first one. This is the first challenge that God issues to Job. This is the first attribute he must demonstrate. Number one, you want to run the universe? Demonstrate your omniscience, your all-knowledge, that you know all things. Demonstrate that to me. We see this in verse 8. He says, will you even, this is how God phrases this, and this is the meaning of it, but this is how he phrases it. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's the way God phrases that, that question there of let me see your omniscience. You see, running the universe requires a full, comprehensive, thorough knowledge of all things. You have to know Everything there is to know about the universe, how everything ticks, how everything works, how everything functions, you have to have the deepest possible knowledge of all things to actually be able to run the thing you're going to run. And we do call this knowledge of everything, we call it omniscience. And I think some of us at times think we have omniscience because we think we know everything. Um, how many of you in this room were a teenager? You had omniscience when you were a teenager, didn't you? Your parents told you you didn't. By putting God in the wrong and condemning him so that Job could be in the right, he demonstrated, Job demonstrated that he not only lacks knowledge, but that the knowledge he had was insufficient or flawed. Essentially what God is saying here to Job is if you're going to run the universe, you need to know everything there is to know about how it works. And, and you are obviously failing to understand that me, as the one who runs all things, has omniscience, but you're treating me as if you don't. So you don't even have a proper understanding of me. This is what God is saying. How are you going to run the universe without omniscience and if you had omniscience you would know everything there is to know about me and you would know that I'm not at fault and that I'm running the universe perfectly that's the point now it, it's funny but it, it really is true how, how could Job run all things without a knowledge of all things how do you do that we need to realize that creation didn't come with an owner's manual right? If it did, would Job not get stuck on page one like I do with a set of Ikea furniture instructions? Hmm? Why do I have 62 extra parts? Wow, they gave me spares as the drawer falls out. 
creation didn't come with an owner's manual. If it did, Job would get stuck on the first sentence. See, you have to know everything there is to know about the thing you're going to run if you're going to run it. That's really the point here. You have to possess the highest. And not only do you have to have a knowledge of all things, but you have to possess the highest level and most profound, deep wisdom there is to, to, to have as well because wisdom is the application of knowledge. So you have to have an infinite the highest level of knowledge, and then the highest level of wisdom to be able to rightly apply the knowledge and carry it out. Because knowledge without wisdom is useless. God is mockingly saying to Job, if you are going to replace me, because that's what you're suggesting, you will need to demonstrate to me omniscience, that you know everything there is to know, because you're going to be running everything. Job knew that he did not possess this attribute, so what does he do? He just stands there in silence. Let's move to the second challenge. Number two, okay, Job, you want to run the universe? Demonstrate your omnipotence. That's all power. We see this in verse 9a. God says to Job, have you an arm like me? Have you an arm like God? Stop there. So in Scripture, the arm of God pretty much always symbolizes His omnipotent all-power. Like when you read text about His arm, the, the, it's not, He doesn't have a literal arm. It's a, it's a metaphor for His unlimited, awesome, omnipotent power. The arm of the Lord is not too, it's not powerless, it, it's not weak, it can save those, uh, Scripture says these things in a, in a multitude of ways, and it always refers to any body part on God, his arm or anything. It always has to do with his strength. It always has to do with his power, and that is the meaning here. So, so we're talking about the all power of God. A great place to see this is in Psalm 89, 11 to 13, where the psalmist declared, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Those are mountains. Listen, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand. High, your, high is your right hand. This is a great example of the hand of God, the arm of God, the power of God that brought all things into existence. That's what the psalmist is praising God for. So, Running the universe requires an absolute perfected and infinite level of knowledge, but it also requires the absolute highest infinite level of power. It takes great power to run the universe, to run creation. Uh, may, many of you probably think this, and I can understand that because we've been exposed to a lot of science coursework in the past, high school, junior high, even elementary, maybe in college, but the universe or creation as a whole, it's not self-sustaining. It has a source of power that runs it. it. It needs power to exist. It needs power to be maintained. It needs power to continue. It is not self-sustaining. If the power that sustains the universe were actually shut off, it would cease to exist, it would disintegrate into dust, something catastrophic would happen. 
creation where the universe exists and is sustained by God's power. The scripture says this over and over and over. So it's not self-powering. God's power upholds and maintains it. This is expressed perfectly in Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus, who is God. The, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So there's the divinity of Christ. And listen to what Christ does as God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. There's the omnipotence of the Son, which is equal to the omnipotence of the Father and equal to the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. That's all power. What's the point, really? It's simple. If God, or if Job, God's running it all with His power. If Job is going to replace God, he will need to possess what God possesses. Omnipotence, all power. I mean, he's going to have to, to keep all the planets in their hover and all the stars burning the way they are and the sun at the perfect temperature and the earth sustained. I mean, just think of the power that is exerted to keep this massive creation, this entire universe, including the invisible realm, the third heaven, even the demonic realm that we know exists. Amen? It does exist. There is a dark realm that exists. We can't see it, but we can see its effect. Did we not see that in Yuvaldi? It's the power of God that sustains and maintains all of this. And here in Hebrews, it's expressed as Jesus as God doing this. And he is saying to Job, look, man, if you're going to replace me, you've got to have omnipotent power. And just think about Job. Job's inability to preserve his wealth, his family, and his health, his inability to deliver himself from affliction, his inability to create, rule over, and care for the earth and over the constellations and over the animals, right? This is 38 and 39. All of this, this inability that Job has proves what? That he doesn't have the power to run the universe. You can't even run your life. You couldn't even rescue your own family from destruction and catastrophe. You can't make yourself well. You can't, you can't do any of that. You're telling me that you can run the universe? And look at you. You can't even re remove these sores and worms from your flesh. You're trying to scrape them off with pottery, it said in the early chapters, but they come back. God is mockingly saying to Job, and there is love in the mock. I don't know how, but there is. You're going to replace me. You're going to need to demonstrate omnipotence, all power. I haven't seen it. Let me see you do that. And, of course, Job knew that he did not possess that attribute. He didn't have omnipotence. He didn't have omniscience or omnipotence. He didn't have any of this power. He had no power. So he just stands there rebuked in, hum in humiliation, and this is good humiliation, silently standing there. Third challenge, God says, you want to run the universe? Cool. Demonstrate your sovereign authority. This is verse 9b. God puts it like this. Can you thunder with a voice like his or like mine? In the book of Job, thunder is used as a metaphor for the voice of God or for God's voice. When God speaks in Job and in other places in the text, definitely at the when the law was issued to Moses, there was a, his voice was booming and thundering and even lit up the mountainside on fire. But Scripture 
shows this. It shows that the voice of God, is, it uses a metaphor of thunder for his voice, and we really see this in Job. Uh, God's voice sounds like booming, earth-shaking thunder. And of course, I think there's this, this still small voice of God as well, but here it's depicted as thunder. Uh, during creation, God exercised his sovereign authority, thundered in his majestic, all-powerful voice, and he ordered the universe, didn't he? Genesis 1. And that's another thing that's amazing about God. In his omnipotence, he speaks, and the power is in his words. Amazing. We see this in Genesis 1. I like what Psalm 33, 6-9 says. Listen to this. It's, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. I think that's what Job's doing right now. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There, there, is, the so, there is the power of God. There is the sovereign authority of God represented in his all-creating, sustaining voice. Think about it. Creating the universe required omnipotent power and sovereign authority. Running the universe requires the same power and the same sovereign authority. So not just creating, but maintaining it requires the same level of authority. If the universe is not upheld by God's omnipotent power, as I said earlier, it will cease to exist. Now think about this. What will happen if the universe is not held together by God's sovereign authority? What would happen if God didn't hold all things within the verbal grip of his sovereign authority? What would happen the moment he doesn't display sovereign authority over all things? What happens? Chaos. Chaos is what would happen. If God doesn't uphold and maintain through his power and through his sovereign authority, which is almost all the time represented through his voice, if he does not maintain it, chaos would ensue. Literal galaxies would crash into galaxies. Planets would become dislodged and crash into planets. Stars would burn out or burn too bright. The sun would not burn properly. It would burn too hot. We would be incinerated. It would burn too cool. We would freeze to death. His sovereign authority keeps everything in order. In order. And his sovereign power or omnipotent power keeps everything empowered. The two go hand in hand. You would have total chaos. You would have cataclysmic destruction throughout the entire universe if he were to release everything from the sovereign grip of his sovereign authority. So the point being, if Job is going to replace God, he's going to need to possess this attribute as well, sovereign authority. But how could he maintain the universe without it? Okay, most people... And they hardly use them anymore, but the majority of them that do, most people cannot even maintain their checkbook or their bank account. Amen? I, I was young at one time, and I wrote checks that, you know, I thought the money was there. I actually thought that if I wrote the check, the money would appear in my account. And uh, at the liquor store that I used to buy a lot of Coors, uh, Coors beer at, I would write checks all the time. These guys were not smart. My checks were rubberized, but I would write all these checks thinking that, yeah, I have $32 in there. 
and I was like minus 6,000. You can't even, we can't even maintain our checkbooks very well. We can't maintain our households very well. And I think some people do a better job than others. Anne is the exception to the rule. She keeps Bruce in check. And if she doesn't do the yard work, it's the Amazon. But some of us do better than others. But for the most part, we're not really all that great at maintaining things. Right? And, and we don't have this attribute of sovereign authority. So, so Job being finite without this attribute, how is he going to maintain order throughout the universe? How is he going to do that? He couldn't even uh, maintain order in his own life. He couldn't even prevent chaos and cataclysmic destruction in his own life. His, his whole life, from the point really of his fall, after he fell, he just displayed one um, inability after the other. If he had sovereign authority, his life would not have fallen apart. He could have kept the things at bay or he just could have kept everything together. And he's just proving that he doesn't have this. And yet he thinks he can run things. And God is really just sarcastically saying, if you think you could replace me, you got to demonstrate sovereign authority. Let me go ahead and see you do that. Let me see you bring order out of chaos. We can't even break up fights and bring order that way. He's mocking him. And Job knew he didn't possess the attribute, so he stands there in stupid silence. Fourth challenge, demonstrate your deity. <laughs> this one's funny. But they're all funny, but this one's especially funny. Verse 10, show me that you are God. This is what he's saying here. Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty. This is divine majesty. Adorn yourself with dignity. This is divine dignity. Clothe yourself with glory. This is divine glory. And clothe yourself with splendor. We're talking about divine splendor here. When we speak of God's glory, we are referring to who He is, His deity, the fact that He's God, His perfections, His greatness, all of His attributes that is the glory of God. It's all that He is. Uh, the creator and, and sovereign God, you know, He's the authoritative ruler and sustainer of all things. He, He alone is adorned with divine majesty, dignity. And what is dignity here? It means elevated rank, by the way, the highest rank. He, he is adorned with the glory and the splendor, all these divine qualities. It's God that has all of these things. These attributive qualities belong to God and, and only to Him. And by the way, they never change. They do not fluctuate. They do not brighten nor dim. The glory of God is never diminished or raised up. It stays right where it is in absolute perfection for all eternity. These qualities that, that God is describing to Job, they're immutable just as God is immutable, unchanging. The challenge here is very clearly for Job to demonstrate his deity, to become God and see if he could do a better job at running the universe. Now, Job, think of Job's history here. Job was unable to make himself physically healthy. He was covered with sores and worms, Job 2.7 in chapter 7, verse 5. He was emaciated because he had lost his appetite. He was so emotionally sick from everything that happened and physically sick. He just couldn't eat, so he almost shriveled up into dust, Job 
He was emotionally and spiritually sick. We know this. He was, in a sense, drowning in a sea of despair, Job 3. Being that this is who he is, how's he going to make himself God and run the universe? How's he going to do that? God is mockingly saying to Job, demonstrate your godness, demonstrate your deity. I I want you to show me that you are God. I want you to show me that you are divine. How? Show me your majesty. Show me your high rank, your dignity. Show me your glory. It's almost like what Moses said to God, right? Show me your glory. And now now in 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 a crazy reverse way, God is saying to Job, show me your glory. Show me your splendor. Show me these things, and then I'll know you're God. I'll know that you can run the universe, but Job could not prove himself to be God or make himself God, so he just stood there. Can't run the universe. He just stands there in silence, probably with his jaw on the dirty ground or on the ash heap because that's where he was. Number five, God said, you're going to run the universe. Okay, great. Let's talk about this. I'd like for you to demonstrate your perfect justice to me. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He says, puts it like this, pour out the overflowings of your anger. This is divine anger, by the way. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is, who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked right there where they stand. So Job saw his affliction as injustice because he was a righteous man, right? One of his complaints through the book is, I'm a righteous man, I know this, I'm a blameless man, I'm an innocent man. He argued all this. I don't understand why I'm suffering because only the unrighteous suffer. That was his very limited understanding of the way the universe works. In his mind, the righteous do not suffer. It's only the unrighteous, the wicked, that suffer. And so when all of this calamity befell him and came upon him, he saw that as an injustice because these things don't happen to good people. That's what he thinks. It's the wicked that suffer. They're they're suffering is is their punishment from God because God is going to just hammer the wicked. And then so with that thinking, he then tried to put God in the wrong for allowing or even causing all those bad things to happen to him. This is what's explained in the text here. And making it worse, and we know this from the book as a whole, but he, what, because he's trying to put God in the wrong because he thinks he's suffering an injustice, he wants to appear in divine court to prove that he's right and that God was wrong. I'm right, you're wrong, God. This is what he wants to argue. It says it here in verse 8. What Job is doing here is he's, Pursuing justice according to his own knowledge. He wanted to make things right for himself and hold others like God accountable for his unjustified affliction. That's what God is describing here. And quite frankly, the moment a man thinks he's right and God is wrong, he is accusing God of injustice. And ultimately, he proves one real central fact about himself, and that's that he's a fool. And this was Job. Now, the deal is running the universe requires a comprehensive knowledge of all things, right? Omniscience and profound wisdom so that justice or true justice or perfect justice can be properly executed. God's perfect justice, and I think you need to pay close attention to what I'm going to say here. 
because we need a, a right understanding of what justice is. And I call it perfect justice because there's variations of justice. God's perfect justice is based on what he sees in the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7, what he reads in the thoughts, Romans 2, 16, what he hears in the words, Matthew 12, 36, and what he witnesses in the deeds, Matthew 16, 27, and Romans 2, 6. So God's justice when it's relating to individuals is based on all of that, not just on a person's deeds, but what's in their heart, what motivates them, what's in their thoughts. That's how exhaustive and comprehensive his perfect justice is. He judges a person and gives them justice based on those four factors after analyzing the person. Very important that we understand this. What I'm telling you is that perfect justice, it is required to run the universe. And the fact is, is that it cannot be executed apart from a holistic inside and out analysis of every single individual. Since man can only analyze what he sees and hears, and because he is prone to partiality and certain prejudices, and obviously we're always dealing with self-preservation because that's what we're into, since man is plagued by these things, he cannot render perfect justice. Earthly judges are at best earthly judges. Now that's not to say that we can't execute some level of justice, but to be able to get it to the level of perfection, we got to know what's in the heart and everything else that only God can analyze. But God's justice, here's, the, here's what's being called into question is God's justice. By Job, God's justice is always perfect because it is based on his full understanding of the individual and it is based on his law, which is the divine standard of righteousness. With God and God alone, you get perfect justice, perfectly executed every time. God renders to man ex the exact justice he deserves because God knows the man better than anyone else. God knows the man better than the man knows himself. We're always lying to ourselves. We always tout how great we are on the inside, and sometimes we have a moment of sobriety and we realize we're really not all that great. But only God can execute this perfect justice. So the point is, if Job is going to replace God, he's going to have to possess this perfect justice. And not only will he need to possess it, he will need to show that he can execute this perfect justice by what? What are the descriptors here? By pouring out the overflowings of his righteous anger, by abasing the proud, because God does oppose the proud and what lifts up uh, with grace that he graces the humble. Job is going to have to display it through abasing the proud. He's going to have to display this perfect justice by treading down the wicked where they stand. How is he going to go execute this perfect justice? I want to see you go and carry it out, Job, amidst the wicked people in us. Let me see you go do that. This is what God is saying. So the question is, how could Job execute perfect justice when he didn't have the other two key attributes, attributes that are necessary to pull it off, all knowledge and profound wisdom? Remember, you cannot execute perfect justice unless you know all things, unless you have the wisdom to apply them. So how is he going to pull this off when he doesn't have the other things? How could he 
execute perfect justice when his understanding of it was so utterly flawed. Right? His understanding of justice is a disaster. Right? Did he not dis- demonstrate this when he went after the source of perfect justice, when he questioned God's perfect justice, when God destroyed a blameless man, Job 9.22? Did he not demonstrate that he had a flawed understanding of justice when he questioned God's perfect justice for letting the wicked grow in power and live long and prosperous lives like on Star Trek, Job 21.7? Sounds like Spock. Did he not reveal that he was lacking in his understanding and execution of justice when he questioned God's perfect justice for not snuffing out the lamp of the wicked, right? When Job thought that should happen. Job 21, verse 17. And did Job not demonstrate a flawed understanding and execution of justice when he flat out, he didn't just question, he flat out accused God of injustice for taking away his rights Job 34, 5. God is mockingly or was mockingly saying to Job, I know you don't have it, but show it to me. Show me. You want to run the universe. Show me that you possess the attribute of perfect justice. I know you don't have it because you've been charging the source, me, with injustice. Show it to me, Job. What was his response? Dead silence, hand clapped or clasped over his mouth. Let's move to the sixth and final challenge for today, by the way. We're going to have to deal with seven in the weeks to come and everything else because there's just too much here. We'll deal with that on, uh, I think, the 19th. Number six, last one for today. You want to run the universe, Job? That sounds like a great plan to me. Demonstrate your judgment. Show me your divine judgment. Verses 13 to 14, last verses. He says this of the wicked, Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Stop there. If Job, and this is just simple, If Job is going to replace God and run the universe, he will need to exercise perfect. He'll have to have this attribute, but he'll need to show it and prove it, this this perfect justice. He'll have to prove it, how? By demonstrating judgment against the wicked. Not by just knowing that they're wicked, but by demonstrating the fact that they are through judgment. If Job can demonstrate the previous attributes altogether, the other five, and the attribute of judgment, and and what would it look like if he were to, to show that he has the attribute of divine judgment? He would take the wicked and hide them in the dust together. What does that mean? He would put the wicked to death. That means to kill them and bury them. He would, and he would bind their faces in the world below. What does that mean? He would cast the wicked into Sheol. After putting them to death, he would throw them into Sheol, the place of punishment for them. So you need to have perfect justice, and I want you to display it through divine judgment. And you do it by punishing the wicked for their deeds and thoughts and all these things, by putting them to death, and by casting them into the world below. I'd like to see you do that. Now, I don't think Job rushed off to us and started 
shooting people. I think he was standing there thinking, there is no possible way I could deal with the, judge, with the wicked in this fashion. And, and the, here's the kicker. This is what's so fascinating about this. If Job can prove that he has perfect justice by holding the wicked accountable and judging them and putting them to death as they rightly deserve and putting them into shield for all eternity as they rightly deserve, if he can do that as well as demonstrate the other attributes, in verse 14, what does it say? God will acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. If you can prove to me, what God is saying is, if you can prove to me that you possess all these attributes, and I would say including the seventh attribute that we haven't gotten to yet, we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but if you can demonstrate what I've asked if you possess thus far, if you can show me that you have these things, I, I, will, I will in a way yield to you. He's not saying I'll give you the keys of the universe, have at it. Some interpret it that way. But I think ultimately what he's saying is this. If Job possessed each of these attributes, listen carefully, by the way, and we're getting toward the end. If Job possessed each of these attributes, he could not only run the universe, obviously, right? But he could also use his own omnipotent arm, his all-powerful arm, his own right hand to save himself from his affliction. This is what God is saying. If you can do all these things because you have all these attributes, then you can pull yourself right out of this suffering. Let me see you do that. Wow. This is what happens when man tries to pit his wisdom and knowledge against God. God puts him in this situation. There's no way he can win. God is mockingly saying to Job, if you are going to replace me, you're going to need to demonstrate judgment. Let me see that. If you can demonstrate all these attributes, then obviously you would be able to rescue yourself from calamity. Let me see you do that as well. Let me see you heal yourself. Let me see you save yourself from your own affliction. God's in the whirlwind going, go for it. And quite frankly, Job, Job was foolish, but he was really not a fool. He was acting like one, but he really wasn't one. He was a righteous man. And he's standing there. Oh, can you imagine what that must have looked like? Just standing there, just his physical appearance destroyed and his pride on its way out the door. Not quite there yet, because we have half of a chapter and a full chapter of God obliterating him. But he's closer. He's standing there in stupidity and silence. God is getting him where he wants him to be. Closing. This text is, is really amazing, isn't it? The text repre it represents very clearly God's devastating response to anyone foolish enough to challenge his management of the universe. That's what it is in a nutshell. 40 and 41, that's really the meaning. Anyone who is foolish enough to suggest that they could do a better job, chapter 40 and 41 are a rebuke at that person. Really? Let me see this attribute. Let me see that attribute. God mocks and literally obliterates, humiliates Job 
as Job failed to demonstrate the attributes that he didn't have, the challenges that he couldn't meet. He couldn't meet any of these things. He couldn't give any answers. But I said it before and I'll say it again. The mocking and humiliation was for Job's good. They were for Job's good. I would even consider this treatment, which seems harsh, these are graces. They're graces. See them as graces. God was working through the mocking, working through the humiliation to graciously bring Job to the end of himself. You know what's so amazing about God is that God knows every individual so intimately and perfectly. He knows what will work to bring them about. And, 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 and thus far, all of the counsel of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and I would even include Elihu, which had, gave the best counsel in my opinion, it was all to no avail with Job. And none of them, quite frankly, we studied the book, spoke to Job like God did. Who of that group, which one in that group, spent several chapters mocking and humiliating him? They did mock, they did humiliate, but they didn't do it for chapters, chapter after chapter. God knew what Job needed. He knew how to reach Job. He knew how to minister to Job. So mocking and humiliation was the vehicle God chose to use because that's what worked on Job. So we can't be critical of God's method. Now, we're telling God if we're critical of his method, we're telling him we would know a better way to deal with people. Now, we're trying to run a universe, and we may as well apply this entire text to ourselves. Bruce, show me your omnipotence. Huh? Amen? This is a devastating response to anyone foolish enough to question God on these things. The mocking and humiliation was for his good. These are graces. God was working through them so that Job could experience genuine, heartfelt, deep contrition, a real brokenness because he's not there yet, but he needs to get there so that he could experience true repentance. And then, of course, the end goal is a renewed, strengthened, broader, stronger, more mature faith. So it's for his good. And the combination uh, of Job's contrition and repentance and, and renewed faith or whatever, however you want to uh, display what happens in 42, this combination ultimately would, and, and all of the correction of God here and even of the friends all together, it was all meant for his good to bring spiritual revival into Job's life and return the things that were missing. And I'm not just talking about his temporal blessings. I'm talking about his peace because he hasn't had that since the fall. I'm talking about his hope. He, has been, he is the, probably one of the most hopeless people in all of Scripture. I'm talking about his joy. We just studied his book. Did you see joy coming through him? No. I'm talking about his sense of security. That's gone. He is worried about dying, and then he wants to die. These are the things that this spiritual revival that would come through, the, the rebuking and the criticism and the mocking and, and all of these things, this is the spiritual revival that would, that would be fashioned and formed in Job, and it would bring back all of those spiritual characteristics that the poor man was missing that would have helped him get through this calamity. And of course, we must not forget the restoration of Job's temporal blessings. What he lost in the beginning, he regained in the end even more. If we at any point 
whether it be during seasons of suffering or not, accuse God of wrongdoing. He will see this as an undermining, even as an attack against his management of the universe. And he will respond. He disciplines the one he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. And that's ultimately what we see in Job. And not only does he discipline the one he loves, but he also does what he said in this very text in verse 13. He does bring judgment upon the wicked who question his rule, who question his management of the universe, who despise him. He does it by hiding the wicked in the dust and by buying their faces in the world below. This is the warning in Job 40 and 41, but in particular verses 1 to 14. And like Job, we do not possess the attributes of omniscience, omnipotence, sovereign authority, deity, perfect justice, or judgment. We don't have any of the things that God quizzed Job on. We also can't run the universe. We can't even save ourselves from suffering. Isn't that why we pray? We, we can't even... We can't even <laughs> We can't deliver ourselves from our own calamity. Many times it's self-inflicted. We can't even get ourselves out of our own trouble. We can't do any of these things. We're as, 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 as finite and as dependent and as helpless as Job was, even more so because I think he was a better man than me. We can't do any of these things. We can't save ourselves from suffering and certainly not in true salvation, spiritual salvation. But the point of the text is God can. His omnipotent arm and right hand can save us from every affliction, ailment, and adversary. Isn't this why we pray for God to intervene? We pray for Him to intervene in the lives of others and in our own lives because we know that He can pull us and anyone He chooses. He can pull them out of the pit easily. This is why we pray. Because we know He can do it. We don't pray to God. I hope we never pray to God in this fashion. God, give me the strength to pull myself out of the pit. We pray we know you're the only one that has the power and the right hand to do this. Deliver me from these circumstances. Deliver me from this travail. Deliver my mother. Deliver my father. Deliver my children. We know that He can and that's why we pray. However... If God refuses to use His power to deliver us from whatever trial we are facing, we can know that His refusal to deliver us from these trials, we can know that even that is for our good. Romans 8, 28, all things He works together for the good of those who love and are called according to His purpose. And we can rejoice in the fact that God has used His power to deliver us from judgment and eternal suffering in the world below where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched, and where the sounds of weeping and gnashing teeth are never silenced. We can always rejoice in our salvation even when life is out of control. Can we not? Mark 9, 48, Luke 13, 28 speaks to these things. 
He refuses. We know it's for our good. But in the midst of all of that suffering and affliction, we should rejoice that our God has used his power to deliver us from sin, Satan, death, and hell. That is the greatest news ever. Life is a vapor. It's a glimpse. It's a, it's a night. But eternity is forever. And ours is fixed forever in Christ. Isn't that worth rejoicing over? Do you know that that message of the gospel received by the martyrs is what empowered them to get through beheadings and crucifixions and being burned at the stake? The hope of heaven in Christ, that's what empowers us. Not the hope that we could have in this life and in the return of our temporal blessings. They may never come back. We may never get out of some of these pits. God may have us in the pits the rest of our life for a reason and for our own good. But he has delivered us from the pit of hell. Is that not worth rejoicing over? Have you been praying for God to deliver you from your trials? Have you? Don't give up. Don't stop. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. It's okay to pray for your deliverance. It's okay to pray for the deliverance of others. We know God can do it. Keep praying. Pray without ceasing. Don't give in to the temptation to question or murmur against God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Philippians 2.14 when you pray, pray for deliverance, but certainly don't complain or call into question his power or timing or anything else. He has you where he wants you. Open your eyes and learn. Open your ears and hear. Don't rail against him. Submit. Accept what he's doing. Know that it's for your good. And I think most importantly, as you're praying for deliverance. I say keep doing it, keep praying, but most importantly, as you're seeking the Lord of all power and all glory and all strength and of all knowledge and of all presence and of all these wonderful attributes, all of the stuff, perfect justice and judgment, all these things, as you exalt and, and I really exult in Him and, and, and pray to Him as you do this and you're bringing your petitions to Him right to the throne of grace, which you're invited to do. Do not forget to thank God for saving you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Never forget this. Never forget this. Always thank Him. Always thank Him. He's done something for you you could never do for yourself. No one in creation could do for you. Never cease to thank Him for saving your soul, for making you new, a new creation for giving you a church family, for giving you an eternity in His glorious presence as opposed to being down below. Never, ever shrink back from thanking Him. Take some of those prayers for deliverance, those intercessory prayers for others, and change them on a Tuesday. And just pray for 10 minutes and thanking Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says it so succinctly and clearly. Give thanks in every circumstance. That includes the ones that stink. 
Give him more thanks in the, in the difficult trials, in the afflictions. Give him more thanks during that time. In the time of poverty, give him more thanks. If he has you impoverished, it's for your own good. If he has you in a sickness, it's for your own good. Give thanks in every circumstance. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 